Hi, friends. Welcome back to the podcast, Have You Met Her?, where I research amazing women from history that you probably haven't heard of and share some of their stories with you. I'm Paige, and today we're wrapping up our celebration of women in sports for now. We will definitely revisit this theme because there are so many more amazing athletic women left on my list. In the United States, February is designated as National Girls and Women in Sports Month. It was established in 1987 by the Women's Sports Foundation, and it gives us a chance to celebrate women who have worked hard to rise to the top of their game. I'm going to say it one more time, but throughout history, women have been told that they are physically weaker than men and that beauty is the aspect of their physical selves that they should be most concerned about. The women that we've talked about this month trained hard and fought to prove their worth in their chosen sports. Through their successes, they've inspired and will continue to inspire women around the world to claim their space in athletic arenas. Our amazing woman this week was using her visibility on the world stage to also advocate for more financial support for women's athletics in the United States. She recognized the gender pay gap for women athletes and had a goal to increase awareness and fight for more equality when it came to compensating athletes and athletic programs. We know that women in America make about 85 cents for every dollar that men make, but in athletics, this difference is even more disappointing. For every dollar that a male athlete makes, a female athlete would have to lose about 49.5 cents. In 2019, the average professional basketball player would make $8,321,937 if they were men, and only $75,181 if they were female. The average professional golfer made $1,235,495 annually if they happened to be male, and $48,993 if they were female. Before anyone gets frustrated with me and talks about the revenue from male sports and endorsements versus what profits there are in female sports, I wanted to share what I learned using soccer as an example. In 2019, the average salary for a male soccer player was over $400,000 a year. For a female soccer player, the average was 35000 But when it came to watching the televised World Cup in 2019, the women's game had 14.3 million viewers, 3 million more viewers than the men's game. Just something to think about. Jumping into the episode, like I teased at the end of last week's, today we're going to be talking about an amazing volleyball player, one of the most charismatic athletes that America has ever seen. She was six foot five inches tall and had a smile that was said to easily energize an arena. But it wasn't just her talent on the court that made me want to share her story. She was a leader 
an advocate for women in sports, and a shining example of teamwork. Pull up your knee pads. You'll need them for episode 50, Have You Met Flo Hyman? Flora Jean Hyman was born on July 31, 1954. Her family, who would grow to include her parents, George and Warren, and her older sister, Suzanne, but also six younger siblings that followed, were the only people permitted to call her her nickname, Flory. To everyone else, she was Flo. Flo was always slim and ahead of her peers height-wise. When her classmates were three feet tall, she was four. When they grew to four feet tall, she was five. Being so much taller made Flo self-conscious, and the teasing that she received from classmates didn't help. She was called Jolly Green Giant and asked constantly if she was related to Wilt or Jabbar. Luckily, she was close to her family and let their words drown out the hurtful comments. She tried to slouch at first, but her mother, who was a tall, proud woman, convinced her that there was nothing wrong about her height. Her mother said she could either benefit from her height or she could hide. Flo decided to roll her eyes at the stairs and comments, be proud of her height, and even try to take advantage of it. The Hyman family lived in Inglewood, California, near the Redondo and Hermosa beaches. During school, Flo was always encouraged to join youth basketball teams and tournaments in the area. Flo was a young black girl, and people assumed that a six-foot-two-inch athletic 12-year-old black girl would be a basketball player. Most of the volleyball that people knew about at the time was beach volleyball, usually played by sun-baked white people on the beach. Suzanne, Flo's older sister, loved volleyball, though, and eventually convinced the now 12-year-old 6-foot-2-inch Flo to team up with her to play two-on-two volleyball tournaments. The dynamics of the game suited Flo well. She was a natural with the ball and learned to communicate and work as a team with her sister. During high school at Morningside High School, Flo played basketball and ran track. She also joined the volleyball team. Like a true contrary teenager, Flo would explain, I think I just took a liking to volleyball because it's the only sport that people weren't after me to play. She would hear all the time, hey, come play basketball because you're six foot five inch and you could be good. Volleyball was Flo's choice and she found out that she liked it. She worked hard to use her height, long arms, and strength to develop a powerful serve and a killer spike. Volleyball became her focus. When Flo graduated, she attended El Camino College for one year, and then she received the first female athletic scholarship from the University of Houston and transferred there to become a Cougar. During her three years in Houston, she helped lead the team to two top five national finishes and was the first person 
to win the Broderick Award, also known as the Honda Sports Award, and called the best female collegiate volleyball player in 1977. Flo was pursuing a double major in math and physical education, and she was doing well in school. But she made the hard decision to leave before completing her last year of college so that she could focus on volleyball while she had the benefit of youth and strength. Flo may have been done with her education, but she fully intended on going back and graduating once her volleyball career was over. She said, You can go back to school when you're 60, but you're only young once, and you can only do this once. Flo had joined the U.S. national team in 1975 and played both college and on the national team until she withdrew from school. Then she made volleyball her full-time focus under coach Ari Selinger. The team worked hard, practicing almost daily, but failed to qualify for the 1976 Olympic Games. Coach Selinger would say of Flo that she may be the best women's volleyball player around. Flo was flattered, but she knew that she could do better, so she went to Selinger and asked what she should work on. The coach called Flo coachable and talked often about how well Flo could read the court. He admitted that she needed to work on her defense, digging and diving for a ball that had been hit from the other team. Flo knew that she struggled with this role. Because of her height, she was scared to dive. She didn't want to get hurt. Coach Sellinger had to persuade Flo that she did want to bash her bony frame into the hard floor over and over again to retrieve a wayward volleyball. Eventually, Flo overcame her fear and became an even bigger threat on the court. Flo is quoted as saying, I had to learn to be honest with myself. I had to recognize my pain threshold. When I hit the floor, I had to realize that it's not as if I broke a bone. Pushing yourself over that barrier is a habit. I know I can do it. If you want to win the war, you've got to pay the price. And then she said with a whooping laugh, I've had a lot of fights with the floor. In 1980, the national volleyball team traveled to Cuba for a zonal contest. The American team placed second, but the player selected as MVP for the contest wasn't from the winning team, as was customary. The player selected as MVP was Flo Hyman. When asked about this honor, Flo said, To me, individual awards aren't important. I mean, it's nice to be recognized and to get trophies, but the team is my first concern. This was one of the attributes that made Flo so remarkable. At a time when athletes were starting to become all about individual glory, Flo was focused more on her team than on herself as an individual. Flo's leadership pushed the team to work harder and keep improving, and the team did qualify for the 1980 Olympics. Unfortunately, the Carter administration boycotted the Summer Games in Moscow that year, and none of the U.S. teams could attend. Like many other athletes from many different sports, Flo advocated for participation. She interviewed with the Philadelphia Inquirer and talked about the sacrifices that all the athletes had made to be great enough to qualify for the Olympic Games. 
She said, It almost feels like we're pawns in a chess game. We wonder, how did we ever get to the center of this issue? The nation always talks about sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. They don't believe that the athlete already knows the true meaning of sacrifice. We've sacrificed our lives, our bodies, our mental state just to achieve this, to prove something. But it didn't matter. American athletes missed the opportunity to compete. The U.S. national team, most of who had stayed together the previous four years, did qualify again in 1984. Flo nicknamed herself Old Lady because she was the oldest member of the team, but her teammates didn't see her age, only her exuberance for the game and her leadership on and off the court. Flo led her team to the podium. The team won silver, losing to the women's team from Japan in the final match. Competing in the Olympics was a dream come true. Flo just couldn't understand why there were so many tears and disappointments from her teammates and her family. She told them to stop crying that this was a huge accomplishment and they should be celebrating. She was as proud as she could be. Coach Schellinger was removed after the Olympic Games and Flo decided that she wanted to find another coach that could help her grow. Her search took her to Japan. Flo's plan was to play for two years in Japan and then return to the United States, finish her degree, and dive into advocating for women in sports. According to her sister Suzanne, Flo had a lot of doors opening for her, broadcasting, acting, and coaching. But what Flo wanted to do the most, and what she would travel occasionally back to America for, was lobby for more money and equity for women's sports. She had seen how other countries do so much more to invest in women athletes, and she wanted to bring that same attitude home. Lois quoted as saying, For men, sports is a business. Football, that's big money. Basketball, that's big money. But we don't get any money. We actually have to give up mostly everything. Family life, going to school. For us, the sacrifice is worth it. Not because we get paid or get endorsements. It's worth it for the sheer satisfaction of doing something that we want to do. Flo also served as a vocal advocate for what would become the 1988 Civil Rights Restoration Act, which restored protection against sex discrimination in high school and college athletic programs, commonly referred to as Title IX now. Flo also wanted to create a stronger volleyball culture. She talked a lot about wanting to build a foundation for the U.S. women's volleyball program. She talked to anyone who would listen or had any poll about how volleyball was just something that you play on your team in high school and that she wanted it to be more. She wanted to inspire and support the younger generation and she wanted to be involved in making that program. I could go on and on about Flo on the court, 
how great of a spiker she was, how hard she went every single game, and how much she always cheered and supported her teammates. But this advocacy for women in sports, not just women in volleyball, and then her push to build something great for future volleyball players behind her is to me what makes her remarkable. On January 24th, 1986, Flo was playing professional volleyball in Japan. During a game, she was pulled out for a short rest. One minute, she was cheering on her team from the sideline, and the next minute, she fell over. She was pronounced dead when she reached the hospital. Flo was 31 years old. Her body was sent home and a pathologist from California was able to conclude that Flo had died from a dissecting thoracic aortic aneurysm caused by Marfan syndrome. Marfan was a newly recognized condition that not a lot of people had heard of. It is an inherited disorder of connective tissue that affects bones, ligaments, eyes, the blood system, the lungs, and the heart. It was truly amazing that Flo lived as long as she did, playing as hard as she could with this syndrome. It said that Flo was the best volleyball player and had the worst aorta. Most people with Marfan syndrome don't know until it's too late, and they tend to die much younger than they should. The newly created at the time National Marfan Foundation reached out and supported the Hyman family. They encouraged family members to test for the syndrome themselves. Flo's brother Michael was found to have the markers for the syndrome and had open heart surgery two weeks after his diagnosis, proactively correcting his aorta before it was too late. Flo quite literally saved his life by losing hers. Over and over in my research, I read that it is impossible to quantify the impact that Flo Hyman had on the sport of volleyball. At a special memorial service at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, these remarks were shared. Flo was more than a great athlete who pioneered in her sport and achieved so many firsts. She left us as she would have wanted us to remember her, fighting hard for the success that only commitment would realize, encouraging her teammates to seek and attain those lofty goals with her. She was and will continue to be an example that we all should emulate as we pass through life no matter what path we choose to walk. We will never see her likes again. No one will ever lead U.S. Volleyball to so many proud and satisfying moments in the world arena. We are all much better because she was with us for a while, but we are so empty and unfulfilled because she left us too soon. Associate Director of the U.S. Volleyball Association shared that as our team became successful and one of the dominant teams in the world, Flo was the best player on the team. And she was one of the most recognized. You can attribute the growth of volleyball in this country to a lot of things, but you've got to have stars. 
You've got to have role models at the top. And people all over this country know who Flo Hyman is and want it to grow up and be like her. She meant a lot to the sport of volleyball, not only in the United States, but all over the world. She was a real force in the growth of the sport. Starting in 1987 and for 18 years, the Women's Sports Foundation awarded the Flo Hyman Memorial Award to an athlete who has captured Flo Hyman's dignity, spirit, and commitment to excellence. Award winners have included Martina Navratilova, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, Mary Lou Retton, Billie Jean King, Lisa Leslie, and Christy Yamaguchi. It's usually pretty easy to find hard data on these women that I research, but every once in a while, I'm able to find a resource that gives us a little sneak peek into a little something extra. One of my favorite resources that I found and used in this episode was a January 1983 article from the magazine Women's Sports. In the article, a volleyball playing writer asked Flo about her life outside of playing volleyball. Flo talked about how she didn't have much of a life outside of the sport. She enjoyed living alone in her own apartment. She said that she did go out to a movie or a disco occasionally, but usually she liked to sit quietly at home and read. She was asked her favorite type of book, and her answer was historical romance novels. She is quoted as saying, I mean, I'll go into a bookstore and not walk out of there unless I have at least five books because I read so fast. She's said to have delivered this surprising admission with a Lily Tomlinish grin. I loved this little peek into the personal life of this amazing athlete. At the beginning of the episode, I talked about the gender pay gap in sports. One way that you can support female athletes is to show up. Look in your community for games, meets, or matches to attend. High school, college, even your local roller derby team. Representation matters, so this showing up is particularly important if you engage the younger people in your life to cheer for and support women in sports. In the show notes of this episode, I will include some links to women's sports causes and advocacies so that you can check those out if you're interested. To research this week's episode, I read the chapter about Flo Hyman in the book, Women in Sports, 50 Fearless Athletes Who Played to Win by Rachel Ignofsky. I also read articles from the blacksportswomen.com, olympics.com, a tribute to Flo Hyman from the uhcougars.com, a 1988 New York Times article by George Vesey called Remembering Flo Hyman, and in that article that I referenced from Women's Sports in January 1983, titled Flo Hyman, Taking Care of Business by Michelle Court. If you're on Instagram, please find our page at Have You Met Her Podcast to see some pictures of Flo Hyman and her gigantic, beautiful smile. You can also check out pictures of all the women that we've talked about on our episode so far. 
For feedback, ideas, or more information, please email me at haveyoumetherpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would follow the show page, leave a rating, leave a review, and then share this podcast with your friends. Thank you for taking the time to help me raise the visibility of our show. As always, this episode is researched, written, recorded, and edited by me using the Audacity Recording Program and Spotify, formerly Anchor for Podcasters. Join us next week when we start celebrating Women's History Month by talking about women leaders. I'll see you next week.